1: Because it's going to be wheels up.
0: Let's get this show in the air. Well, I would like to welcome everybody to today's issue of Flight Safety's Detectives. We are on the road again. And I would like to remind everybody that today's podcast is brought to you by PAMA, the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association, as well as Avemco Insurance. Vemco specializes in general aviation insurance. So if you are in the need of insurance, whether you're renewing, buying an airplane for the first time, an instructor looking for insurance, give them a call. Their number is 888-879-0389. Again, 888-879-0389. And I would also like to thank all of our listeners who have emailed in ideas for the show. We have a growing list of ideas that we would like to address. And we would also like to acknowledge those people who help defray the cost of these shows, which Greg and I have funded ourselves with some help from our two sponsors. And if you want to, you can log on with Patreon and many other, and make small contributions to help us offset the costs. We greatly appreciate it. And without further ado, we can get into today's podcast.
1: Well, John, we are on another road trip. Thank goodness. This time it's to a warm spot. Daytona Beach, Florida. Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University. Home of the Eagles and
0: my alma mater. And it's a good place. And we're in the studio today for WIKD. It's nice. And if you aren't close by, it's 102.5 FM and it's a a great day to have another episode of flight safety detectives well it's
1: even nicer to be in a professional studio versus your little office
0: and wherever i am whatever i call an office for us doing our podcast so i am certainly jealous of all the equipment i'm looking at and all the uh, not only first class equipment but the first class studio and it's uh really quite a
1: difference Well, if you would actually get out there and get us more sponsor money, we could actually have a professional studio. That would be nice.
0: It would be nice.
1: Well, we're looking forward to doing that because uh, as we've talked about in the past, we are looking to have uh, a studio of some sort to be able to do our YouTube broadcast as well as recording our podcast. So again, get off the stick, John, and get us some money so we can build a nice little studio. In Denver, I'm sure. Well, Denver, Boston. I don't mind traveling. So. No, okay. Well, we are we are fortunate. We're blessed that we've been invited to Embry Riddle, aeronautical University in Daytona Beach to do this podcast. But uh, we're gonna meet with a number of faculty and of course some students. We want to to introduce the audience if they don't know who Embry Riddle is. Of course, it is a premier. Aeronautical University and I was blessed to uh, to be able to have graduated from this university and this is where really my career started in aviation safety as an intern. So uh, I owe a lot to the university and I try to give back through a variety of things that I do. You and I have talked about Embry-Riddle on previous podcasts and uh, we've had some folks and of course you and I had talked about a young lady who published a paper in the master's program, or PhD program, that created a little bit of controversy with some of the feedback we got, which we will address at some point, not in this particular podcast, but we will have that young lady on to to talk about it. But today we're going to absolutely talk about a variety of different things with Embry-Riddle, and we are fortunate today to have Bob Joyce, who is the Director of Aviation Safety on the flight side, here at Embry-Riddle. So, welcome to the show, Bob. Glad to have you.
2: Thank you guys, thanks for having us.
1: Well, one of the things that, uh, of course, our audience, a lot of folks in the business know about Embry-Riddle and its storied history. And then, of course, we get a lot of feedback from students regarding aviation, aviation careers, and of course, universities. Give us just a nutshell. I mean, you've got an interesting background and we're going to get into that because I think it's very interesting, your professional career prior to coming to Embry-Riddle. But give us a nutshell about Embry-Riddle and and what you see Embry-Riddle is as far as an aeronautical university and the safety culture that's been developed because John and I, the whole purpose of this podcast really is about the safety and the backstories and the things that people don't know. When we dissect accidents and some of the issues that we address, give us, give us your idea and and your perspective of of safety here at Embry-Riddle and how that
2: culture has evolved. We're very fortunate here at Embry-Riddle. Safety trumps everything else. And that's right from alumni like yourself, the board of trustees, the president, right through to the newest student. You know, we have posters up, you are the safety culture, live the safety culture, So, and we're very fortunate here because for most of our students and flight instructors, for example, that's all they've ever known. And we have a big sign up in the flight ops building safety, quality, professionalism in that order. All three are very important, but safety will trump any situation, any kind of doubt that their safety would be compromised, that we won't do the activity. And we can get into the safety culture and the safety management system. But really, to have the buy-in from the top right through, I don't like to say top down, right through across the entire university, which includes the alumni, from a a guy working in safety, it's a pretty fortunate position to be in.
1: John and I have talked on a number of podcasts about safety management systems and tried to introduce it in a a very generic way because it is a complex subject. But one of the big issues and questions that I get a lot is how do you define professionalism? Because the NTSB has really now put that into their vocabulary when they're looking at accidents and and a lack of professionalism that have either caused or contributed to accidents. How do we define professionalism here at Embry-Riddle and what kind of culture or at least definition of professionalism as it relates to safety culture is ingrained in in the students that come out of Embry-Riddle.
2: Well, you know, there's there's the cliche answer, you know, doing the right thing when nobody's watching, but we do really take that to heart. And we have kind of a, a, another challenge here because we, are, we deal with emerging professionals, right? They're coming right out of high school and we're introducing them to a whole lot of different concepts, a whole whether it's doing your laundry for the first time by yourself or living on your own, right through to this is an aileron as we start teaching them the flight side of things. So but we ingrained that from day one and we we show them the resources that are available to them. In fact, for our flight students, the first oral they'll do with their instructor is they get a tour of the flight ops building, get introduced to the different professionals within the building and how they can help them. So and then right through to our flight instructors who are kind of heading off to the airlines that are young professionals. But on top of that, we also have ingrained professionals that we get to work with, like yourself, the faculty, the staff, our fleet maintenance. They're entrenched in their jobs. They're, they're, they live here at Ember riddle So some of the conversations I'll have with, say, fleet maintenance folks is part of our job in the flight ops building is to teach that professionalism, whether it's you know picking up a piece of paper on the floor right through to knowing your flight operations manual and adhering to the different protocols and procedures we have in place, but also understanding it's a lot of information. They're new. So part of what we're doing is, is still teaching that, that professional uh, approach to flying airplanes. And one of the concerns that John
1: and I have had in the past, especially with flight instructors that are looking to build time and then move on to a bigger and better career is keeping their head in the game. One of the things about being a flight instructor is the fact that if you are young and you are trying to accumulate the appropriate time to move on to your next level career, how do you stay in that moment? How do you stay within that professional circle, if you will, and give your student that 110% till you accumulate hours versus just droning around in the sky so you can park or something into your logbook? So that you can then move on to your career. How do, how do we do that here at Embry-Riddle to keep these students, these flight instructors focused? Because I know that we have flight instructors that then stay on after they graduate. They work in the program before they move on. How do you keep them reined in and keep them thinking of not only safety, but of that professionalism so that they don't just sit in that cockpit? And and they give the student what they deserve, and that is the highest levels of safety education as they are going through their flight training.
2: It's a great question. And Ken Burns, a few years back, created the Flight Instructor Quality Assurance Program, which the first job I, I had here at Embry-Riddle was quality assurance manager for the flight department. And when people hear that, they usually think maintenance of a QA position. But we have uh, senior instructors that are mentors That will observe orals, flights, and FTDs. And it's more on the training side, but it's also helping that instructor instructor, if they are sort of getting distracted by something to stay tuned in. They'll debrief with the mentor. We as the flight safety department will share different scenarios that have happened uh, or any trends that we're seeing. All de-identified, of course, but we meet regularly with the training teams to uh, share these events just to make sure that they're aware that th- these things can still happen. And as you said, you can't have a bad day as a flight instructor. You have to be tuned in not only just for the quality instruction, but um, primarily keeping your, you and your students safe. And again, one of the issues that
1: John and I talk about across the board, not just on the flight side, but of course on the, uh, on the maintenance side, is that accountability And again, it's real easy to point the finger. Well, I didn't do that. It wasn't my problem or it was a bad policy and procedure and I was just told to follow it. What kind of culture is there here where if you have a flight instructor and they see that, hey, something could be done better or this doesn't appear safe to me or something to that effect? What kind of reporting system have we built into this flight school? We know that it, it occurs and it, and it exists in, quote, a safety management system within an established organization like an airline of a non-punitive reporting system. How does that work in a flight training environment at a university like this?
2: That's a great question. So my position as director of aviation safety, I'm not actually part of the flight department. I report directly to the Dean of the College of Aviation. So my office is actually downstairs in our flight operations building. All the training folks have their offices upstairs. My windows are frosted if we want to have a closed door conversation. So the instructors know they can have a confidential conversation. We have a confidential reporting system. We use WBAD as our reporting system. So usually, you know, If they don't want to do it on their own, they can come into my office. I can help them write the report or our our student assistants. We all sign confidentiality agreements within our, everyone that works in our office. The fight training guys are great. They know they won't even ask for names and they really don't care if someone has a situation that uh, we need to remediate a little bit, but they know the door is always open. If they see something, say something. We push that constantly. And it's actually happened just this week. We've had a couple of situations where somebody saw something that might be a concern They've come to my office, and not only a flight instructor, but dispatchers. Uh, mm. This was the other situation. And they know that they can say it confidentially, and then I'll find a tactful way to to approach that subject. And now,
1: do you deal with maintenance folks as well, or are you just with the flight ops?
2: Yeah, we you know we were involved with fleet maintenance, and they've brought the AMS, Aviation Maintenance Science, into our world recently and working with their safety management system. And, and then just in the last few weeks, the unmanned aerial systems, UAS, has now come under our safety management system. And really, the Dean of the College of Aviation, Dr. Stolzer, I mean, he's written books on SMS. He knows it so well. And, and all of those departments are under his supervision. So it kind of made sense to bring those different flight departments into aviation safety because it's all related. And that reporting system goes across
1: the board. Yes. So whether it's maintenance or, or unmanned vehicles or whatever, the reporting is the same if there's exactly. any kind of safety-related hazard or issue.
2: It is, and you know, in fact, with our fleet maintenance, it's a confidential reporting system. And one of their guys, one of the mechanics was great. He goes, well, you know, the one computer we use for our confidential reporting is right in the middle of the shop. Mm. <laughs> so, like just an observation like that. So we've actually changed how they report so they can do it confidentially and not go to the one computer in front of everybody else. And a great observation by that that technician. It's great, something we never thought of.
0: Wow, that's, a, that's interesting. Twist, see? Because mechanics are trained to observe.
2: Right. Yeah. So they know when someone goes to that right. computer. And it's a different world in the shop. I mean, it's not as big. You know, we've got 150 to 200 flight instructors, 1,200 to 1,400 flight students. Whereas in the shop, it's a little more intimate group. And if something happens, you know, they might all turn their head and go, what was that? So it's a little different approach to. But the guys have been great. They've uh, actually come with a couple of different proactive reports that have initiated some change, not only the computer, but another area we were dealing with because of COVID. They saw where safety was compromised in how they're communicating with the pilots. And because of that report, it kind of spurred some conversations and a risk assessment. And we went back to how we used to handle the clipboards and writing up airplanes.
0: Good morning, you on the ground, Canadian 920. We're just coming up to Juliet. A920, runway right taxi. After somebody reports something and you get into it and maybe you've reached a conclusion or maybe it's an open item, where does it go from there? So we'll get findings, look for
2: recommendations. And depending, again, I'm not a mechanic, so we might go to someone in the shop. We have a liaison in the shop that's an AMP on aviation maintenance science. We have one of the faculty Who's done a great job? She's given up some of her teaching side to be a safety coordinator for aviation maintenance science, and we're looking to do the same thing with UAS. So we'll we'll go to those. I'm a flight guy, so I can deal with a lot of the situations within flight. But if it's a situation where maybe we think some remedial training is required, that and we don't do that in the in the safety office. If it's a flight person, for example, we'll send a de-identified version of the narrative to the chief flight instructor. He'll forward that to the manager of standards. He'll ask me for the name so we can assign a standards pilot, do the training, and we kind of reverse the process and close it out. So, and the same on the maintenance side. Again, it's a little more challenging to be completely confidential in maintenance. If somebody drops something or something happens, they all kind of know, right? Or somebody gets hurt, but it's the same idea. We'll, we'll do the investigation. We'll, we'll kind of seek the subject matter experts in the shop. And they all kind of have learned now that it, it is for the greater good, and maybe we can change something and prevent that from happening again.
0: Now, who is that person's name? I can't say. <laughs> the, the woman. It's... Oh,
2: Kristen Klaus Kristen. Oh, uh, on the aviation maintenance science. I thought you are testing by confidentiality. <laughs> can't reveal my sources, right? <laughs> yeah, well, we do that on the show every once in a while, <laughs> yeah. trust me. No, no Kristen so I, Klaus. I'd
0: like to talk to her. Yeah, point.
2: she's great. She's been a great addition. And we knew when aviation maintenance science was proposed and we're going to work with those guys on their safety management system and risk management strategies that w- we're not AMPs. We don't know that world. We don't pretend to. So let's and the beauty of Ember riddle I mean, when I took this job, they asked me a question, what would you do if you didn't know how to handle a situation? I said, I work for the all-star team of aviation, anything aviation. There's an expert anywhere. And I've used it. We were working on a tabletop scenario a couple of years ago and we had a question about an air traffic control component. I said, I'm going across the street. Professor was working with some students, moving airplanes around in the lab. And it's just like I was actually in an airplane and he's talking to me because he said, oh, hang on a second. Turn that guy to, you know, 270 climb maintain. And then he come back to me because he, he was working a few different stations within the lab, but answered
0: my question. So we're very fortunate in here to have, be surrounded by such expertise. I tell a lot of my students in an SMS class that it really is, uh, you have to change your mindset to be all inclusive. Yes. And you have to say, who are the stakeholders in whatever problem you're looking at and reach out to them and bring them in. And really you never know who's going to have the the key to this problem that you're trying to solve. I often tell a very long story about in my past running a safety group of safety people for a station of, of uh, seven or 800 people. And, we had a problem that wasn't solved for a long time. And finally, in a group meeting, a utility person, which is the lowest paid person in the airlines, and the one that is disrespected most often, he came up with the answer sitting in the back of the room. And as the chairman of that group, I ended up getting the accolades for solving this problem. And it really came from the-, the John person. takes a lot of accolades, especially
1: <laughs> with this show, trust me. Take all so. <laughs> the credit and
0: give out all the blame, right? <laughs> it came from the person that was least expected to have be have the ability to solve the problem. So we just,
2: I had a risk assessment this morning. We were doing something on a new operation that we're trying to implement. And in that risk assessment, our safety coordinator, Mac Dixon, assistant chief flight instructor, man, dispatch manager, and a flight instructor and a student. Because everybody has a unique perspective. They're all stakeholders in what we're trying to do. So um, we do that with AMS. The first risk assessment we did included the chair of the department, Kristen, a faculty member, and some students. It was about a tug that we had been uh, been donated here. And it turns out the students, guys were former military. They've been operating tugs mm-hmm. on ramps for a long time. Uh, or they work on, at FBOs in, in the summertime. So very experienced and It's always a a wonderful experience to go through that to see the input that everybody brings to the decision-making process.
1: One of the things that I've been preaching ever since I've been preaching aviation safety and one of the concerns about having a flight school is that in this type of environment, whether it's here at Embry-Riddle or any other flight school, We're all training as single pilots, if you will. You're flying with a flight instructor, but a lot of your training is done as a single pilot because eventually you're turned out as a single pilot. How does the school then train this team concept and really train CRM? Because I think CRM starts in that training environment with a student and a flight instructor because you have to have effective communication. You have to work together if there is an issue you got to be able to have a transference of control. So you're working in a crew environment, yet we don't really look at it as a crew environment in that training scenario. And you have to have this communication skill. You have to have the CRM skills, if you will. How does the university train that so that when we do turn out students and they do go to an airline or an operation where it's going to be a crew
2: environment, they're able to adapt? You know, it's really the onus. Um, There are classes on on CRM, but one of the things we do when we're training our flight instructors is setting the culture from day one. In fact, as a flight instructor myself, and I was just having this conversation with an instructor yesterday, I would tell the, the newest student, if you see something that doesn't make sense to you, speak up, I'm not too proud, we're in this together. And um, it's that inclusive and open communication within the cockpit, you know, it's and, it, and that's kind of how these people, these young people are now. With social media, there's mm. so much communication that's happening. Some of those barriers have been broken down and through, you know, p- pilot flying, pilot not flying roles and responsibilities, that's from day one. It's busy uh, here to learn how to fly at Embry-Riddle here in Daytona Beach. But once they get over that kind of Initial hump of the congestion and the traffic. I tell them, you know, I've flown into New York, Chicago, LA, and those airports aren't any busier than ours. The difference at those airports, it's airline crews come in and go, and there's two of them up front. They know what they're doing. Here, it's a training environment. So the communication is key. And even a, a solo, that single pilot operation, we'll talk to students. You've got ATC, you've got flight service station, you got tower. I'll say to them, what's your biggest hazard here in central Florida? And we'll get down to other airplanes, right? Because it's a flight training environment. And I'll tell them, well, who's in those other airplanes? And they'll usually say students. I'll say, okay, well, who else is in that airplane with that student? If you need some help. Oh, a flight instructor. I said, yeah, there's a whole airborne cadre of flight instructors, whether it's ours or someone else's here in Central Florida that are part of your crew. And we've had, we gave out a safety award to one of our flight instructors a couple of years ago that helped a student, that a solo student that was having some trouble in the pattern got on, on the frequency and helped that pilot land the airplane safely. So CRM isn't just within the cockpit, as you know. There's all kinds of resources, and we make sure they're aware of those.
0: You know, we, we live in aviation, and and we have the greatest high-tech airplanes and the latest computer-controlled instruments and, you know, the latest and greatest in general. But the, the stills, the bottleneck has still been communications all along. In my generation, I worked at the airlines. Maintenance didn't talk to the baggage handlers. Pilots talked to maintenance, but they didn't talk to anybody else. I mean, it was all vertical silos and would have to go up the chain, cross over at the manager's level and come back down. And oftentimes what came back down didn't represent anything near what went up.
2: Well, and I'll take it one step further. My son's actually sitting in the lobby here. He's coming here to school next year. He's going to be a communications major, speaking of communication, a soccer player with a soccer team. But I was sharing with the board of trustees recently, or last year in my briefing about communication You can't just put out a a two-page PDF safety newsletter anymore. My son's had a friend group. There's about seven or eight of them. And he was talking to uh, one of his friends and she had 700 notifications in one day just from that group. Mm. So how do you get through all the different ways between Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook, whatever the kids are using, how do you get that important information out to them and get get their attention?
1: John, you brought up a point about your generation. Your generation, they were only flying kites. They weren't flying anything else, were they? Hey,
0: I learned to fly in a J-2 without radios. Communication, right? You are, like I say, you're old
1: as, you're
0: old as dirt. Well, so. we're here today on Wilbur Wright's birthday. Yes, we are. And some of my friends like you like to say that I got my flight instruction from Wilbur. From Wilbur. I was going to say, what did you get him for his birthday?
2: <laughs> yeah. That's
1: right. You've got a very unique logbook, John. Now, the biggest part of this whole interview with you, Bob, is how you came to Embry-Riddle because you have a storied past. (laughs) You were a professional hockey player. How did you go from being a professional athlete
2: into aviation to Embry-Riddle? So, well, I was around airplanes my whole life. My dad uh, actually retired as aviation safety officer for Central Canada. He was in the Canadian Air Force, then switched to Transport Canada, we got to Winnipeg and four kids and the Air Force wanted to move him to Quebec to be a supply officer because he had a business degree. He said, uh, no, I want to <laughs> fly airplanes. So he, he switched to Transport Canada, as you know, the FA's counterpart yes. up north. And so I was always around airplanes and I'd go with them sometimes. Um, we have to check out a float plane operation. So we'd hop in the Beaver and check it out over in Lake of the Woods in Kenora, then bounce into my friend's lake places on the way home. So I'd been around aviation most of my life and but again, I was a hockey player, and so when I retired, you know, I saw the need for airline pilots at the time, and this was in, in 2000. But what I found was I enjoyed the flight training environment, which is why I didn't go to the airlines. And it was the flight instruction side was just coaching. It's a different game, but my whole life I've either been coached or coached someone else or coached the younger player when I was playing hockey. So they're very similar, the career paths. They're, they're passion-based industries. But then to be a professional takes a lot more than just passion. You need the work ethic and the resilience and the opportunity. As we know, it's not cheap. Flying airplanes is not cheap. I've got kids, my daughter's a dancer, my son's a soccer player, and they don't give those lessons away for free. So so you need that opportunity as well. So the the parallels are very similar. And in fact, I was doing a podcast for a hockey guy, not a couple of weeks ago here on campus and a guy that's traveling around talking hockey. And I said, it's a passion-based curriculum. You need all those things but also it's an environment where you're a group of people with a common interest working towards a common goal. And that's what we do in flight training. And then everybody has each other's back. I'm very fortunate here, we have each other's back. That's in hockey, you know, someone cheap shots me, I know my, my teammates gonna take care of it. And I would do the same for them. And it's the same here, we have each other's back with a common goal, all of us here, including you guys of delivering safe and effective flight training. Yeah, one of
1: the things that, of course, being able to play baseball all of my life up Mm. through college, one of the things is you learn operational discipline. Yes. On a baseball field, you know that in your respective position, you've got to perform at 150%, you have got to work the fundamentals, and you've got to stick with those fundamentals because that's what works, and I presume the same thing in hockey. You go back to the fundamentals, you don't, I mean, yeah, you may get a little crazy and you may stray outside the box, but as long as you maintain that high level of operational discipline, you're going to be successful. And of course, we talk about operational discipline in the cockpit yes. and in all aspects, even in the in the maintenance hangar as well. As long as you maintain that high level of operational discipline, you're going to be successful. And I presume that that carries over from your professional days as, as an athlete, but how does that translate into what we do here in this training environment. And how do we stress that? Is it hard to ingrain that in a a student pilot going through Embry-Riddle?
2: You know, there's times when they might stray from it. And again, it's just so much information they're getting so early in their career. But we stress that from day one, that operational discipline. And there are times when you have to think outside of the box given a certain situation on the baseball field or on the rink or in the airplane. But we do, we we stress those fundamentals. As a hockey coach, I also coach the hockey team here, and it's all about fundamentals. And they'll say, coach, we need this system or that system. I said, you need to make a pass first, (laughs) right? (laughs) So the parallels of the careers, you know, you didn't get that opportunity in the baseball field without doing the work. Now, somebody, you might know someone that gives you a spot on a team, but you're not going to get on the field and stay on the field without performing. And it's the same with our Flight training, we're not going to give the keys to that airplane unless you've done the work and demonstrated that you can do that, you know, through the check ride process and evaluation. So yeah, the career paths of a any kind of professional are very similar. It takes the work ethic and the you
1: know. And you carry that that same kind of analogy one step further. It's one thing to get in the door yes. to an airline or an operation where you're gonna either fly it, fix it, or manage it. It's another thing to perform to stay in that position or excel in that position.
2: Day in and day out. And I'll, I'll speak to students, some of the classes here, and I'll use Tom Brady as to an example. Whether you're a Patriots fan or not, I'm sure we have a Patriots fan here. He's always Careful, at- Careful, the- you're on thin ice. <laughs> oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he left. I'm sorry, he left the, the nest. But you know, he's always at a certain level. Some days are a little better than others. When you look at pro sports, it's the athletes that perform day in and day out. You know, the running back that's going to get that five, six yards every game, every, every possession, hold on to the ball. The quarterback that they might not throw three touchdown passes, but they're not throwing three interceptions that day. They're just always at a certain level some days. And that's how we are as pilots. That's what you want out of your pilot. Some days, you know, the landings go a little smoother than others, but the professional is is completing that successfully every day.
0: Well, Greg, it was great having Bob Jones on this show. It's great being at Emory Riddle, but we'll wrap this one up and and move on to our next adventure here at the university and. Like to remind everybody that this podcast is brought to you by PAMA, the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association, as well as AVEMCO Insurance. And if you need insurance on your airplane, you need to renew your insurance on your airplane, you need instructors' liability insurance, give AVEMCO a call. If you mention the show, you get a 5% discount, which is not too shabby. And it's always nice dealing with. You're insurance carrier instead of a broker. You have nobody in between. So if you need insurance, give a Vemco a call, 888 Again, 888 I would like to welcome everybody to email us at commons at flightsafetydetectives.com. We've picked ideas off for the show from the, those comments. We've reviewed accidents from those comments. We review every single one of them, and oftentimes we'll either call you or, or email you directly about uh, any comments you may have or any additional information we may need. So, And in closing, I always remind everybody that this pandemic is not behind us. So wash your hands off and wear your mask whenever you're in groups and not outside. Don't gather in, in large groups inside facilities like restaurants or anywhere else where there's a large number of people. If we all mind our P's and Q's, it would be surprised how quickly this this, uh, virus will disappear. And if you're going to go flying, please do a pre-planning exercise before you even get to the airport, plan your flight. When you get to the airport, do a thorough pre-flight of your airplane and fly safely. To listen to more episodes of the show, go to flightsafetydetectives.com or the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association at pama.org and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Catch us next time when John Golia and Greg Fife talk about all things aviation. Thanks for listening.